Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Boss Up Podcast, episode 242. I am your hostess with the mostess, Emily Aries, the boss behind Boss Up. And today I am really excited to bring you a conversation. I guess I always start them this way, don't I? I'm really excited, but I am. It's true. I can't lie to y'all. I am truly delighted and excited and enthusiastic about today's guest, Sheridan Blandford, who is the Director of Inclusion at the University of Wisconsin's Intercollegiate Athletics Program, where she essentially furthers equality and justice with an intersectional lens via the world of college athletics. She has a fascinating amount of experience to share with us and made me really think about some new ways of understanding how sports fit into our broader narratives right now around race, gender, inclusion, equity, and what that means for former college athletes like herself and me, and people who are raising little kids, little girls to potentially become badass athletes themselves, and little boys, uh, and everyone in between, and thinking through how athletics can actually play a big role in access to opportunity. So stick around because you are going to love hearing from Sheridan on all this. It's a long one. I'm not going to lie. We had a lot to cover because I feel like I haven't talked about sports on this podcast in pretty much any way in a long time. So I'm eager to hear what you, the listener, has to say about this episode. So first, a little bit about Sheridan. She leads the current division of Intercollegiate Athletes Programming Initiatives, Policies, and Procedures regarding diversity issues that will facilitate a diverse and inclusive culture across dimensions of diversity for student-athletes, coaches, administration, and campus and community constituents. She manages the development and sponsoring of specific student-athlete support groups and encourages and supports student-athletes' participation on campus, community, and athletic programming. Last year, Sheridan was named as one of Wisconsin's 49 Most Influential Black Leaders by Madison 365. She attended the Learfield Minority Academy each of the two last years, serving as an alumni ambassador at the 2018 event. Women Leaders in College Sports also selected Sheridan as a 2018 Rising Star Award winner in 2018. She previously served as the Assistant Director for the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, and she graduated from St. Olaf College in 2015, where she played basketball and earned her master's in the University of Washington's Intercollegiate Athletic Leadership Program the following year. Sheridan, welcome to the Boss Up Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. So, you know, we crossed paths in a really interesting way back when I was doing some panel moderating work 
for a real estate association here in Denver that your mother happens to be a part of, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. And you were the ringer that came in from out of state to to contribute some seriously excellent diversity and inclusion perspectives on that panel. And I remember leaving there thinking, we need to be friends. And And it was good. It it worked out. I feel like mission accomplished on that front, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was very random. I mean, the things that you do for your, for your mom, right? My mom's one of my (laughs) greatest supporters. So it was one of those like, Hey, just got to bite the bullet, but came in and um, was just, didn't really know what to expect, but Mm-hmm. found the time very valuable and felt the same, same way about you. I was like, she literally is a boss. Like I have to figure out how to stay in contact with her and been following all of your tremendous successes and bought the Bossed Up book and have my agenda and all the things. So, And you're a member of the Bossed Up trainer team too. Yes, exactly. So. Exactly. So thankful that our paths have crossed in the way that they have. So tell me how you got into the work that you're into because you're technically on the University of Wisconsin's diversity and inclusion staff, yes. but your work focuses in college and intercollegiate athletics. Yes. So tell me about your journey to DNI via sports. How did that happen? Lofty question. It's I, I'm a huge believer that everything works out for, for the good, and I am very thankful to be in the position I'm in and continue to have influence in this space, but. To start off, um, born and raised in Colorado, in Aurora, come from a biracial family. So my mom is white and my dad is black, but come from a sports family. So um, have an aunt. She actually oversees all of the high school activities in the state of Colorado. So she's a commissioner and she is the first and only black woman to hold that title in the entire nation. So again, overseeing a high school association. So had her as primary role model growing up. But uh, as it relates to sports, again, mentioning coming from a sports family, I played, I think, every sport possible, but took specific interest to track and field and basketball. And going back to my aunt, she, again, being in the position she was in, we spent a lot of our weekends at state high school events. So anything Mm. from hockey to cross country to basketball. So was very much in that. And that was a part of what we did. That kind of started my love for sport, but then kind of transitioning into my own experience, um, found a love for basketball and track. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. played basketball and ran track in high school and then had the opportunity to get recruited by a small division three school in Minnesota. And before going to St. Olaf on my recruiting visit, I hadn't been to Minnesota, didn't really know anything about Minnesota. But at that point, being 17 or 18, wanting to explore the world, as you will, um, was like, I need to get out of Colorado. So ended up going to the St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota to play basketball. And at that point, my life was very much sport. And going into college, I was just all focused on sport. And I think that that's a pretty common thread with college athletes, where you find your success and that's where you find fulfillment in what you do. So that's where my mind was. Ended up going to St. Olaf and different than my high school experience. So grew up in Aurora, Colorado, just pretty diverse. I ended up being the only woman of color on my basketball team at St. Olaf for my entire four years. What? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, which is not necessarily a new concept in division three, but again, when you think about the sport of basketball and women's basketball, you think of diversity and you, when you kind of see what's going on in the WNBA and our college sports. So I'll say that that was another kind of pivotal point in me understanding that this work is something that I wanted to do. 
ended up actually having four knee surgeries in college. So I, my college career basketball career didn't end up what I wanted it to be. Thankful for it because I actually had the opportunity to participate in this program called the Trio McNair Scholars Program. And essentially what Trio does is it really invests time, effort, and energy into underrepresented minority students across campus who have the desire to eventually go to graduate school. Mm. And um, what you do going into your junior year is you do an internship, which I ended up actually doing with my aunt. And then going into your senior year, you do research. So it prepares you for graduate school. And then they, you know, go through all the GRE testing prep and all that different kind of stuff. But inadvertently, my injuries kind of pushed me to think about who I was outside of sport. And I can say that, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without this program. So ended up again interning with my aunt and then doing research on Title IX, actually, and learning about the gender equity in higher education, but particularly to sport, but realized that there wasn't really an intersectional focus mm-hmm. as it relates to how does Title IX support women of color from the time that they enter sport through their collegiate careers. That's kind of where I started to really figure out, okay, this this is an area of interest. We're not really talking about the experiences of women, and co- women of color, the unique experience of women of color. So to fast forward a little bit, my senior year ended up doing research on the experiences of minority female student athletes at the division three level. And that was my experience. Um, mm. I ended up doing it in my conference. So it was really, I think there was about 70 identified women of color in the entire conference, 13 institutions oh my God. with, wow. you know, between 15 and 20 sports. So very limited number came to figure out that a lot of these women were experiencing the same things that I was experiencing, Um, finding a sense of belonging, understanding who you are in your identity and being confident in that, finding mentors and Mm -hmm. people that look like you, whether that's in the college athletic space and or just on campus in general and finding a sense of community. So when I learned that all these women were having similar experiences as me, I was like, okay, I'm sitting on something here. Mm-hmm. So then from there, I ended up going to the University of Washington for graduate school and studied sports administration there and took particular interest to our sociology of sport class and can say that when you get into those spaces, you're having really difficult, deep conversation. I'd wa- Everyone would walk out just drained and tired and I'd walk out just like high on life. Like, we've got to keep having these conversations. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's how you know you're a D&I professional. Exactly. That's where it was like, okay, I got to figure out like how to do this, right? <laughs> so um, graduated and was like, well, what the heck am I going to do? Because at that point, Emily, the surprisingly to a lot of people, there was only two diversity and inclusion positions in all of college athletics. Right. Well, that's the thing that that kind of fascinates me about your focus professionally. Yeah. Is like, is there a space for diversity and an intersectional lens in sports? Because I feel like sports are kind of a metaphor for lots of other arenas of of professional life. Yeah. In that we think there's a meritocracy at play, right? We believe... We believe that athletics are part of a merit-based system, you know, Mm -hmm. points and speed and strength can be measured. So before you tell us the rest of your your story here, I want to ask a little bit more about what got you curious in your graduate studies there. Yeah. And, And is the meritocracy at work 
withheld or upheld? Or are there more social systematic inequities that influence access and ability to sports? And, and what did you find as you were navigating that research? I'll start with just the basic nature of sport. As you were a college athlete, you understand the need to put in the work and to lift weights and to perfect your skill and to be a part of different spaces where you're being recruited and all of that different type of stuff. So yes, in some capacity, there is a meritocratic kind of lens about you have to put in the work to get to where you need to be. Mm. On the flip side of that, going kind of into these systemic issues, there is absolutely barriers as it relates to access and opportunity for folks to enter these spaces. And, you know, as a young girl, and I'm assuming you're the same way, it was like, I want to play college sports. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of merit in that. However, it is, especially in today's world where youth sports are on the rise and kids are specializing in their sport at ages six and seven, which like is insane to me. But your ability to go to college is based off of the, access, mm-hmm. the environment that you're a part of and the access to resources that you have. So I'll speak specifically from my experience. Grew up playing and being a part of your school teams, but in the sport of basketball, and I know it's the same in volleyball and a lot of the other sports, you have to play club sports in order right. to get recruited. And right. club sports are, I mean, ungodly expensive. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when you talk about access and opportunity, particularly for your underrepresented communities that are in impoverished spaces or don't have as much money, it's nearly impossible for them to even get access to those spaces. Because again, you can pay upwards of three to, I would even say 10 grand a year. Again, you pay and then you go to these Mm -hmm. specific tournaments and those tournaments are the ones that college coaches are coming to, to watch. Right. And I remember in high school myself sitting down with a, you know, I'd been playing volleyball only since my freshman year of high school in Connecticut, where I grew up, there really wasn't access to volleyball on a varsity level before then. And I loved it. I was good at it. I had some natural abilities that were coachable, right? And so that's when my parents started having a conversation with a family friend who happened to be the head of athletics at... I think the University of Ohio. And she said to my parents, you know, if she likes volleyball, double down on volleyball, not basketball, not soccer, not lacrosse or whatever, like these super popular sports where there just weren't that many women in volleyball by comparison. And that's when my parents started thinking about, oh, maybe volleyball camp in the summer makes sense for a week. And that's expensive. Mm -hmm. Maybe club. I think I played one season of club Mm -hmm. only my junior year when I knew the college scouts were going to be there. (laughs) So we just got in by the skin of our teeth and a sport like volleyball doesn't require tons of expensive equipment. And so access from that standpoint is also something to consider. You know, some of these sports, football, lacrosse, those pads and whatever equipment sports require are can be very, very expensive as well. 100%. And I think that's why you see when you look at representation, particularly on TV, like you're looking at some of the sports like a basketball, volleyball still needing to invest in some more resources to help diversify the sport at large. Mm. But when you talk about Mm -hmm. basketball, you talk, talk about track and field. That's where you see a lot of diversity representation. And it's not all of it, but a component of that, again, is to that specific point as it relates to resources and Mm -hmm. how much you have to pay for equipment and what you need 
to kind of show up and be good at that sport. But you think of, again, like you're saying, lacrosse and golf and sports like that, more your country club sports, that's why you don't see as much diversity. It's just because of the cost. So simply the cost associated with participating in those sports. Okay. So I think that's kind of the framework of this conversation is a lot of us don't ever think about that element. A lot of us don't even think about the intersectional access question of the politics of getting into sports. And I guess, first of all, we should complete your story. Tell tell us how you got to where you are today. And then I have a million other questions for you. Okay, awesome. Yeah, well, I'll be, I'll be quick-winded here. Um, but I ended up going to Washington. From there, there wasn't any really diversity inclusion position. So I ended up going back to the conference office that St. Olaf is in, a member of the conference that I did the research in and had the opportunity to really start some of their diversity inclusion initiatives and kind of policy change at that level. And then from there, ended up going to a conference, the NCAA Inclusion Forum, and met my predecessor. And she had the title of Director of Diversity and Inclusion. And I was like, mm. oh, my God, like, I have to meet this woman because, first <laughs> of all, she seems awesome. But she had this title that I really wanted eventually and just learn how she got to where she was. So I ended up talking to her. And in that same vein, she was like, yeah, I'm hiring and I want you to apply. So I applied and ended up going through that process and actually started at Wisconsin what would have been almost three years ago as the inclusion engagement coordinator. Almost a year later, I was actually elevated to the director of inclusion engagement, overseeing the entire effort and have since been in that role for about two years and actually had a friend in the diversity inclusion world talk to me the other day. And he had said one year of doing diversity and inclusion work is like dog years. It equates to seven years. Yeah. I feel like I have just been drinking out of the fire hose ever since stepping into my time at Wisconsin, but even more so being elevated and just trying to create change one day at a time in my role. So I love it. Well, what a good lesson around networking your way into your dream job to follow your admiration, right? Like follow the people you love, reach out to the people whose jobs you want. I call that having a career crush. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't think of them as out of touch or unable to respond to you. You know, don't put up a barrier between you two. If you really admire someone, reach out and they might just be hiring. You never know. I love that story. Okay. Tell me more about Title IX because Title IX is something that comes up a lot when it comes to college sports. Mm -hmm. And I feel like most of us don't really understand what it is or what it means, much less how like there have been, I think, some unintended consequences of Title Mm -hmm. IX. So tell me what your take is on, on what that's done to college sports. Title IX, like you had mentioned, is it's very simple, yet it's very complicated in a lot of veins. And actually was on a webinar earlier this week about the intersectionality of Title IX put on by the Women's Sports Foundation, and they did an incredible job capturing it. So Title IX was passed in 1972, and it is actually an education amendment. So it is pertinent to all education, so from elementary all the way through higher ed. And I think a lot of people specifically focus on Title IX because of school. They look at it with sport in mind, and that is a huge part of it, but want to frame that it is for all rights, equitable rights in education. The specific definition of it is no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participating in, be denied benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So again, framing this in the grand scheme of education as a whole, but because 
particularly college athletics, is a part of that educational system, they directly benefit from this. So just to be clear, the intent was to make sure that girls and women had the same access to educational opportunities that boys and men do, starting with peewee baseball. You know what I mean? Like the beginning. And this is why women started playing sports. That's why sports were available to us as little girls and weren't for our grandmothers, right? Exactly. And that's what I was going to say is that it provides, which sounds crazy, like you think 1972 for some of us, it's like, that's so long ago, but it's actually really not. And I bring up, you know, you talk about grandparents. My grandma was a stellar basketball player, but never had the opportunity to get a college scholarship and or go to college because this wasn't intact until the early 70s. So um, I think in a lot of spaces, it has been really powerful uh, because it has provided so many more girls with the opportunity to play sports. When I was on that podcast the other day, someone had mentioned that there was about 100,000 women pre, like right when Title IX passed, who were participating in sport. And now there's over 3 million over the course of our society that are participating in sports. So it has definitely created a lot of access, a lot of opportunity for people like you and me, Emily, to yeah. go and have that opportunity to play sports in a college space. Yeah, that's been really beneficial. But then on the flip side of that, as you had mentioned, there's a lot of misconceptions and things that actually haven't fully worked. <laughs> and that um, one to start with is about women coaching college sports. So right when Title IX was passed, the majority of sports were being coached by women. And then now the statistics are female coaches in all women um, only make up 25% of the coaching head coaching positions for all division one, two, and three levels, while males make up 75% of head coaches positions. Did you say that prior to Title IX, coaches were predominantly women? Yeah. So prior to, and then right when it was passed, they were predominantly women, but the, sh- the shift has since changed just due to jobs and money and access and things like that. Um, women are not coaching women's sports, which is something that as a entity in the NCAA, but even broader, we need to, need to work on. The other sort of unintended consequence that I've become increasingly familiar with in the past few months because my alma mater, Brown University, has been having quite a bit of drama around lately. Essentially, in the collegiate level, you need to balance the scale, right, between how many women are playing sports and how many men are playing sports. And my alma mater recently got into a serious firestorm of PR disaster Mm -hmm. when they basically made the decision to eliminate 11 sports at the varsity level. So like 11 different of our varsity teams just got eliminated, including people who had just been recruited and just gotten scholarships were told, never mind, JK, don't come, in order to like rebalance the gender numbers, which is it resulted in an uproar specifically because they had decided to eliminate men's track and field and cross country, which are some of the most accessible sports based Mm -hmm. on racial injustices and a lack of access to um, sports that require more equipment. So like they really weren't looking at these with an intersectional lens, just looking at it via gender, not race. And then 
to be honest, like the president of my alma mater basically sent out a, a press release and an email to the whole university community saying because of Title IX, we had to do this. So blaming gender equality for making what yeah. was seen as like a really bad racially unjust move in the Ivy League where right. we kept sailing, we kept golf, but we didn't keep men's track yeah. and field, right? So that was very frustrating to the point where there was such an outcry that they've decided to reverse that decision, which is great. But yeah. what does that actually look like? What is the what is the actual situation? Like, do we need to have the same number of women athletes at the collegiate level per college than male athletes? Or what is that? Yeah, so it's it's a complicated process. I think with a lot of these amendments and things, there's always loopholes, right? So it makes it difficult. And I'll just say, going back to your point about what happened at your alma mater, I think some of the interests that I have, particularly in this work, again, is that intersectional lens because right. we have to be equitable or provide equal opportunity for both genders or all genders. And then thinking about, okay, well, race is a whole separate thing. And it's like, no, no, but they actually like really, Mm. we need to be thinking about this from an intersectional space. So I think the fact that you bring that up is just very interesting. So Title IX, it's, (laughs) and by no means am I an expert in this space, but in college athletics, there are three different opportunities, if you want to say, and or requirements that an athletic department can choose to abide with. Mm. There is one, what you had just mentioned as it relates to participation. And you're talking about one of the options is providing equitable opportunities in sport. So what it does is it says that based off of the kind of demographics of campus, that's what your teams have to mirror. So if your at-large campus has 55% women and 45% men, your athletic teams have to mirror that same exact percentage. Right. right, So that's that's one of the options. The next one is scholarship. So you're talking about providing the same access with, again, those percentages on campus, equal opportunities with scholarship. So for example, at Wisconsin, one of our ways that we provide, again, that equitable access for women and men to kind of offset the big football team, because that's a lot of big division one schools have football teams, right? And to offset that with women's opportunity at Wisconsin, we provide rowing and lightweight rowing, the other gamut of female sports that we provide. Um, But then that, again, offsets that ensures that we're providing for scholarship. And then Got it. there's kind of a third tier, making sure that you're providing equitable equipment and supplies, scheduling of games, travel, access to tutoring, coaching, all those different things. So a lot of entities, a majority of them really buy into that one and then make sure that they're, again, providing that equitable opportunity based off of percentage uh, for their larger campus. So again, I'll say that I'm not by any means an expert in that, but hopefully did that due diligence to explain kind of that, yeah. how that's broken down. I would go ahead and counter that you work in diversity and inclusion professionally at the college yeah. sports level. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say you you are an expert in training, if not an expert. So Tell me more about how you have brought an intersectional lens to the programs and policies and procedures at Wisconsin. Like, what does it look like to run programming for diversity and inclusion at the collegiate sports level? Yeah. So I'll say that I I use two analogies, one that I'm just drinking out of the fire hose like 110% of the time. And then also building the plane as I'm flying it. So as I had mentioned, when I started at Wisconsin, 
Um, we were one of three departments in the entire nation who had diversity inclusion professional and or department at the collegiate athletic level. I'll say prior to everything that's happened over the last month, there was about 12 of us. And now the positions, which I'm really excited about, are popping up like daisies, right? Because mm. a lot of folks are really putting intentional effort and action into investing in this. So that's positive, but it's still very small as it relates to numbers. Mm. So with that, I always love getting asked this question because I'm like, how the heck am I going to like boil this down to? You know? Yeah. What do you, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do exactly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, how I describe it is essentially my my overarching goal is to ensure that every stakeholder that is attached to Wisconsin athletics, whether that be a student athlete, whether that be a staff member, whether that be a coach, an administrator, a campus partner, and or a community member in the Madison community and or at large can come to Wisconsin, be a part of Wisconsin athletics and feel valued, heard and respected by just being them. So granted, that's a lofty goal, but that is essentially kind of how I root my practice As I mentioned, we have kind of four stakeholder areas. So one being one and probably the most obvious being student athletes, second being staff coaches in in administration, the third being campus partners. I I realize I have to preface this for you get in certain industries and what kind of becomes second nature nature language to you doesn't necessarily make sense to folks outside. But when I say campus, Hmm. um, an athletic department, and this is at all levels, is almost viewed not as a separate entity, but they operate separately in a lot of ways. And there's kind of a division. And even in my undergrad, it was very similar, even though it was a small liberal arts institution. So athletics kind of operationalizes, not necessarily on its own, but in its own kind of lane, if you want to say. Right. That's what I mean when I say campus partners, because athletics is obviously part of the campus, but it's more like the academic institution outside of athletics. Mm -hmm. And then that fourth stakeholder is the community. So you think about the Madison community at large and or just like the national community when you're talking about the NCAA at at large, or you're talking about the Big Ten or things like that. So Mm -hmm. with all those stakeholders, I say I'm the the jack of all trades, kind of master of all, because we get to dip our toes into all of those different areas. And particularly Division One and a Power Five institution, they have lots of resources. So you'll find that, you know, if you have an academic person who is specifically tasked with working with a specific team, and that's kind of the frame of how everybody works within the space of Wisconsin athletics, is people are very spe- specified to work with their particular entity, whether that's a student athlete, whether that's HR. But with my work, we get to dip our toe again into all those different pools. That's awesome. Can I ask specifically about the student experience? I feel like that's the one that I'm most interested in, probably selfishly, just because I was a student athlete. And for our listeners who may be raising little kids to maybe get into sports or are watching Netflix specials like Cheer and seeing these (laughs) basically pseudo professional stars at age 14 or 16 turn their athletic lives into careers. What does it look like to bring an inclusion lens to the student athlete experience? So I view it kind of twofold, Emily. And one is obviously supporting empowering, engaging, and advancing our underrepresented student-athletes. So when I say that, obviously, meaning our racial minority student-athletes, our LGBTQ student-athletes, our female student-athletes, and then our LGBTQ student-athletes are kind of the the main populations we focus on. Mm -hmm. We put a lot of time, energy, 
resources and effort to really ensuring that again going back to kind of the base concept they can come to wisconsin athletics and be themselves and succeed and success is not only defined on what they do in their respective playing fields but it's what they do on the outside and that's primarily where i focus i always say this to families who are coming in to recruit it's like you're going to go and you're going to do all these great things on your respective field of play but i'm worried i'm concerned and want to invest in you as a human who are you outside of that sport so i think from that capacity it's just kind of tying it, bringing it full circle to my personal experience and what I found through my research, ensuring that they have a sense of belonging so that they can come because Wisconsin is in the middle of the Midwest. You're talking diverse surrounding environment. There's not a lot of it. And then even though what you see on TV with college sports, you'll say, oh, a football team, oh, they're super diverse or a basketball team, they're super diverse. The student athletes of color um, only make up between 15 and 20% of all diversity within college athletics. Mm-hmm. So your your white student athletes, both male and female, make up definitely over half, if not close to three-fourths of the entire athletic population. Wow. So again, even though they are represented what is on TV when they come, and they're usually in those spaces, yeah. they're a part of a predominantly white institution, right? Huh. I feel like people who are sports fans yeah. might not feel that way. Although I guess the, the sports that are on TV, yep. mostly NBA, mm-hmm. NFL, tend to not be the whitest, <laughs> right? Exactly. And there are exactly. lots of college sports that are not at all like those two divisions, right? Exactly. And even then, like you're thinking about, so on the flip side of the, that statistic that I just shared, your revenue generating sports, mm. so your football your men's basketball, those are the two main ones. And then contingent on institutions, some institutions have baseball that are revenue generating or hockey that are revenue generating or volleyball, but your primary sports that are generating revenue are your men's basketball and your uh, football. And those stats that I just kind of shared at Wisconsin alone, our student athletes of color make up about 40% of our revenue generating teams. But like in the grand scheme of the statistics of all the sports are only making up about eight to 10%. I mean, that's just, that's another rabbit hole that we could absolutely go down. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of misconception about representation just because of what you see on TV, but you don't realize like at Wisconsin alone, we have 23 sports. Right. There's that piece. But again, going back to it, it's about really hoping that students find a sense of belonging, um, that they feel like they have a community that they can connect to not only in athletics, but on the campus at large. And then, in the Madison community surrounding. Also ensuring that they can view themselves outside of just athletics. As I was talking about my experience, I didn't really think about who I was and my injury kind of humbled me to have to think about that. Right. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like it's an identity thing, right? And first of all, so many of us, our identities are fragile at best in college anyway. I feel like college Mm -hmm. is when a lot of very sheltered children go off and have to figure out who we are in this world on our own. And it's such a critical time to formulate a sense of self. I don't know if I ever told you this, Sheridan, but my freshman year, Mm -hmm. preseason, right before we were about to, you know, start our volleyball season, I tore all the ligaments off my right ankle and in a practice injury and was so like I'd gone from having the second highest vertical jump on the team as a freshman Mm -hmm. to being not put in a single game all year. And then I ultimately quit 
my freshman year. So my my experience as a student athlete was limited at best and unpleasant to say the least. But because of the Ivy League NCAA rules, my scholarship was not tied to sports. It was tied to financial need. So I was able to make that kind of a decision without putting my entire collegiate life in jeopardy. But as you said, I think when you define yourself by being good at something athletically, and then all of a sudden that sense of pride and achievement and ability disappears overnight, whether it's, you know, this can be true in so many different aspects of life, you have to redefine who the hell you think you are. Yeah. And what you think you're capable of. So how, I mean, it sounds almost to me like the work you're doing mirrors the progressive movement towards diversity and inclusion on college campuses writ large, but focusing specifically on a population of student athletes that are not used to being, that have, I would say that have unique challenges. Is that, is that right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you hit on the, the nail on the head. And this is what I always say to them, whether there's this concept of identity foreclosure. And again, it can happen in any, any realm of life, right? When something that you kind of tack your wagon to is taken away from you, you're like, who, who am I? What do I do? And in your and my case, identity foreclosure. Yeah. And like for you and I, you know, it was a, it was an injury that was like, oh my God, you know, took us, took us away from again, what got us to where we are. And we had to kind of reframe, like, who are we? And I think that what I realized in my role, and this is just one of my favorite parts of my job is I get to help people see who they are outside of their sport before they get to that point, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. And it's really important, as I'd mentioned, a lot of them, particularly at the division one level and going through trickling down, because it was my experience too. But one of the primary places in their life that they're finding success is through their sport. Right. So a lot of people are saying, you know, this is where I make my bread and butter. This is where I want to put all my energy and effort. This is what I want to pursue professionally, which is like all great and dandy. But at the end of the day, you have to help people think about who they are, like where, what they're good at and where they find success at and how they can influence the world outside of just that. Right. So that when that is taken away from them, whether like, again, in our case, it's an injury and or it's at the end of their college career and or if they go off and have a fantastic professional career, I always say at some point you're going to have to hang your shoes up. Who are you outside of that? Because mm. we want to prepare you for that before you even get there. So then that way, when you get there, it's not this revolutionary concept where you're you going through all these identity crises and not knowing who you are and not knowing what you're good at because no one helped kind of push you to think about those things. So that is that is where one of my favorite parts of my job that I get to help people see themselves outside of sport. I love that. Thank God for the work you're doing because those are, especially when your sport and your participation is tied to scholarship. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about an identity crisis. Oh, yeah. It becomes a financial crisis when that disappears or if that is taken away. So, yeah. And I'll say it's a, just something that's happened over the last, I want to say five or six years. Don't quote me on that. But that the NCAA has instituted essentially a rule where in spite of the fact that you get hurt, because this wasn't something Mm. I'll say that happened 15 years ago, if you got hurt, your scholarship could get pulled. But they've instituted something now where if you are on scholarship, you still have the opportunity to finish your school career and you what you do is you medically retire, but you still have access to all those resources and things that you would if you were still participating, which I think is incredible. That's great. Yeah, so important. And just so you know, I am going to quote you on that because you're on a podcast right now. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, what is one thing you want our listeners to know that they might not know or might not think about when it comes to sports and diversity? Yeah. Oh, gosh. You're asking all these loaded questions. (laughs) You're making me me boil it down, Emily. (laughs) But it's good. To kind of just your point that you mentioned, I think sports is a vehicle for opportunity. And I will say as someone who benefited from that, um, I think it is an incredible way to build the leaders of tomorrow because of just all the great things that sport can teach you Mm. through leadership and time management and dealing with controversy and difficult conversations and working with teams. So I think sport is just a catalyst just to develop the next generation of leaders. I will say that um, in a lot of ways, back to some of the conversation that we were having about meritocracy is that there's a lot of beauty in sport because I will say it's one of the only places where you want to say inclusion can exist because you have all these different people from all these different backgrounds with all these different experiences coming together to work toward a common goal. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. But in that same vein, I think what with that mindset, what is it does, what it has the tendency to do is it dismisses differences and what people do bring to the table. So I think that what I would say is that as we're thinking about sport, we have to think, yes, it's a vehicle for change and it's a platform. And it develops people to be, you know, leaders of tomorrow. There's this statistics that show that there's a lot of Fortune 500 leaders, particularly women who run Fortune 500 companies who participated in sport at some point in their life. But what we have to do is be really mindful of thinking of particularly those that are in higher levels and even not right. um, who they are outside of their sport. And I think um, being able to push the conversation in that way to Mm. not just view them as just an athlete is really something that I I advocate for because we have a lot of really great young people who, you know, just need that extra push or just need that extra avenue to figure out who they are. And we're, we're, we're really doing a lot of great things and just continue to emphasize that is what I would say. I love it. And I mean, Colin Kaepernick has shown us the rise of the athlete activist, right? Like def, Finding yourself beyond sport and your values and what they what you stand for in the world. I mean, I love the evolution of the athlete celebrity that we're seeing right now. Right, one hundred percent. Yes, and I think it's it's so powerful. And I, you know, want to want to give credit where credit's due. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, along with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and um, yeah, you know, Muhammad Ali are some of the you know first folk. I mean, those are just the ones that come to my mind, but I know that there's a handful even before that who have really used that platform to advocate. And I am just so in awe and so proud of, you know, all of these athletes, particularly with this climate, what's been going on in the last month, who have chosen to say, you know what, I'm going to use this platform with all the people, all the eyes that are on me to do what I need to do. And I admire the hell out of Colin Kaepernick. I mean, he is just (laughs) a boss of all bosses, I will say. Put his, to put his career and his right. life at risk to bring about change. And I think, uh, again, firm believer that everything happens for a reason. He's now getting the credit he deserves. Yeah. So um, really, really, really great. That's awesome. It's such an interesting thing to think about how women fit into this too. In the Bossed Up oh, yeah. book, I write about how part of my journey back from burnout involved mm-hmm. regaining physical strength through – you know, comp- competitive running and, and competing in a triathlon in D.C., but also getting in the best volleyball shape of my life, becoming a, a volleyball 
beach volleyball doubles partner with my now partner partner yeah and having swagger again feeling physically yes the bodily autonomy and agency you get from sports especially as a woman as we've all been conditioned to just like oh, yeah. be pretty and not take up space <laughs> it's yeah. such a <laughs> radical thing and it translates over yeah. to radical courage and other facets of life in such a clear and direct way to me it's just as fraught and as problematic as title line can be in execution i am so grateful to live in a world and to have been raised as a little girl who had access to sports because that is a, a game changer yeah. yes it it's just transformational and i think that you hit on a point about just the the power and understanding what your body is capable to yeah. do and holding on to that rather than again the be pretty look skinny i gotta hold it together right. and but just really holding on to the power of what what our bodies can do and how you know like i said we could have 10 different podcasts about the power of women in sport and body image and all these different type of things but i think you hit the nail on the head yeah. with that one about just the power of it and what you can how, how it makes you feel just the, the confidence and the strength that that it exudes as you are participating in any physical activity. Right, definitely. Teaching yourself to not see yourself as an object, but as an agent. Absolutely. Right? And that's a radical thing. That's a feminist thing. It is. And, it, and it's hard. Again, I think we all in some capacity struggle with that. And I know I do, you know, transitioning out of sports and having your body not do what it <laughs> used to do, but right. still working every single day to love it and be proud of all the great things that it continuously does and upholds for you in your life. Oh, so, Oh, Sheridan, I, I'm, I feel like we're going to have so many questions that come from this episode. We might just have to yes. have you back, but it has been Absolutely. delightful chatting with you and learning more about your fantastic work. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Very blessed to be here again, Emily. I really appreciate you and all the work you're doing. Um, for women, you know, I think it's it's definitely needed and something that I've definitely bought into. So I really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. You are a blessing to this oh, world. Thanks, Sheridan. If you'd like to learn more about Sheridan, including learning more about her brand new very own consulting firm where she helps with speaking and training on diversity and inclusion initiatives, head to EncompassExcellence.com. That's Encompass with an I excellence.com. And you can also head to today's show notes at bossedup.org slash episode 242 to get that link and many more, including a link to watch the replay of that Title IX webinar she was on earlier this week with the Women's Sports Foundation. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. Today's Boss Move comes in from Melissa, who shared recently in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook the following update. I landed a job during COVID. I've successfully completed my MSW, passed my AWSB, interviewed with my top choice agency, and negotiated $10,000 above their first offer. All of this because 3.5 years ago during Boss Up Bootcamp and the 10-year reunion exercise, I was finally able to communicate some of the dreams living inside me. Now I'm one step closer to making it reality. <gasps> Melissa, I am so proud of you. For those of you who don't know what she's talking about, we have a really cool opening exercise at Boss Up Bootcamp, which I am eager to invite you to join me at again. But not going to happen this year. All of our boot camps for the year have been canceled. 
due to COVID. But Melissa, oh my goodness, I am so, so proud of you and so impressed with all you've been able to accomplish right now. If you're listening and are struggling on the job search, I know it is hard right now. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. I know there's a lot of unemployment. We have a completely free, comprehensive job search guide awaiting you at bossstep.org slash job search. It goes through a very detailed step-by-step guide to navigating the modern job search with excellence to help you land the next job that you want. And if you also want to be like Melissa and negotiate a higher starting salary when you land that job offer, head over to bossstep.org slash negotiation for our free comprehensive negotiation guide. Here at Bossed Up this year, we've really put in a lot of time, energy, and effort behind the free resources we've made available in the form of like downloadable guides. So if you're the kind of person who's a DIYer, who wants a step-by-step plan to follow on your own, those are the best resources to go to on our website and access so that you can level up on your own with no expense. If you're the kind of person who wants more guidance via live coaching, one-on-one coaching, or group coaching programs, we have those available too. But our priority this year was access, creating access to some of the best content you can find, in my opinion, (laughs) but really high-quality career advice for $0. So once again, those links are at bossedup.org slash job search and bossedup.org slash negotiation. You can find them again at the show notes today, bossedup.org slash episode 242. Learn more about Sheridan, reach out to her, connect with her, hire her. She's a total badass. I invite you to follow up if this topic today was of interest to you. If you want me to tackle more topics like this, let me know. Tag me at Emily Aries on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever. I would love to hear from you or leave a comment at today's blog post, bossedup.org slash episode 242. And in the meantime, of course, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. 